This is Vermont Edition. I'm Jane Lindholm. For Vermonter Nancy Stearns Burkhaw, her family didn't tell her the extent to which her drinking troubled them until after she'd stopped. You liked wine more than me, her young son said, after she told him she had quit. Her husband acknowledged that he knew it had gotten bad, and he knew she was hiding the extent of her drinking from him. But Nancy had to come to the realization herself first, and it took three decades of hard drinking before she got there. Nancy Stearns Burkaw got sober just about exactly two years ago, and she's just published a memoir about her life, her drinking, and her journey to sobriety. In it, the through line is her relationship to her body and to swimming. She was a competitive swimmer through her college years, winning the national championships and qualifying for the Olympic trials in her senior year. Her book is called Dryland, One Woman's Swim to Sobriety. And Nancy joins us now. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Jane. I'm so happy to be here. Your book moves back and forth between your younger years and Abu Dhabi in March of 2015. Um, And that's the year you got sober. So we learn a lot about your experiences swimming as a child and in college and about your young adulthood and your many travels as a Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya, um, a journalist in South Korea. And then we also travel with you on this day that you decided enough. I'm done drinking. I am going to get sober. And that was almost exactly two years ago, just over two years ago now. First of all, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Big milestone. Why did you want to share this very personal journey? Because I don't think people share enough about alcoholism. I, I, I think of the state of Vermont right now, the dominant conversation, and rightly so, is about opioid addiction and the epidemic. But we're still a population with a lot of people battling alcoholism. And there's so much shame attached to it. I mean, even in my own family, when I talked to my mom about it, and I told her I was writing a book, she expressed a lot of concern about this being public information. And my feeling was it needs to be public information. But you don't have to be the one to take that on. So why? Well, I also think my journey is is kind of a good story. <laughs> In some ways, I mean, the book is not meant to be completely prescriptive. It might inspire people to find their own way to quit drinking. But it's also just about being a woman in the world um, and transforming from an athlete to a mother and different identities. If anybody asked me, what is the book about? I would say it's about identity and landscape. Um, And those are my two themes. So I knew I wanted to tell a story. In fact, when I moved to Abu Dhabi, I thought I'd come back with a book. I didn't know I'd come back with this one. (laughs) Will you read a little bit from us to give us a flavor? Oh, sure. Um, Before I start reading, you should know that I'm going to talk about Mangrove Place, which was our apartment complex in Abu Dhabi. And you should know that my son is David and my husband is Alan. And this is at the very end of the first chapter, and I believe it sets us up for what's going to happen in subsequent ones. I know my blood pressure is elevated from drinking a martini, a bottle of wine, and a nightcap every single night. I have chronic heartburn and stomach cramps from the amount of alcohol I consume. I look nothing like the great swimmer I once was. I'm thick around the middle. My once long, lean legs look more like tree stumps these days. 
My eyes are red, but not from chlorine. The lines around my eyes are from chronic exhaustion and age, not swim goggles. Between my natural freckles and the sun damaged sun damage acquired by swimming in the Florida sun throughout my youth, I look sort of like an aging giraffe. Swimming a handful of fast laps in the very short pool at Mangrove Place defeats me. I'm not who I was or who I thought I'd be. I'm a pudgy giraffe on the Persian Gulf. Every inch of me is out of sorts and out of place. I've mastered the art of hiding the full extent of my drinking from David and Alan. My son sees most grown-ups enjoying happy hour around dinner time, so I give myself free reign between 5 and 7 p.m. I think David sees my habit as the norm, not the exception, thanks to all the years I've been doing it and all the places we've lived where other expats do likewise. But I crossed the line somewhere along the way. Where was it exactly? Kenya? Korea? Singapore? Hard to tell. Seems like it all just snuck up on me. Alan has tiptoed around my alcohol use for years, either cautioning me not to go overboard or jumping off with me. He's the kind of person who can have one glass with dinner and call it a night. He's also the kind of person who can party into the night maintaining a happy buzz by pacing himself. Once I start, though, I can't stop. I drink the way I used to swim, all or nothing. Truthfully, nothing was never an option. It was always all. At precisely 5 p.m. on March 27, 2015, I fill a glass with ice-cold vodka from the freezer, and swallow down my last antidepressant with the first gulp. I'll deal with the reality of being out of medicine when the sun rises in the morning and the local mosques start calling the faithful to prayer. In the meantime, I'll sit on the couch in our tiny living room and drown myself from the inside out. That's Nancy Stearns Burkha reading from her new memoir, Dryland, One Woman's Swim to Sobriety. Nancy, that turned out to be your very last drink, although you didn't know it at the time, or maybe maybe not your very last drink, right. but certainly your your last drink of that time. That the last was my drink. F- my first drink of the last night I drank. Right, and it was I was running out of antidepressants, which is how I start the book, um, and it was the running out of the medicine that sort of jump started my realization that I needed to get sober. You know, it's interesting because in the book, um, as I said, you jump back and forth in time, but but a lot of the book is this journey to try to get the antidepressants mm-hmm. that you need, that you've run out of, and how to get them in Abu Dhabi, you know, how to how to find a doctor who will prescribe them. And there's so much anxiety in your attempt to get, just, just to figure out how to get these antidepressants that for a while, as I'm reading, I think, 
why is she so worried about this? I mean, I get it that it can be hard to find a doctor mm-hmm. in a foreign country, but it seemed so weighted. And you finally get the realization that what you're actually worried about is more than just the antidepressants. It's about your whole health and what is the doctor going to see in you that you're trying to hide from everybody, including yourself. And it that becomes clear right. through this storytelling that there's more going on there. Yes, I was afraid that in trying to get my anti antidepressant that the, I would be busted. The doctors would check my blood pressure, they check my weight, uh, touch my liver, whatever they would do, and see this person has a drinking problem. So really, the antidepressant, the need to get the refill was sort of um, my fear about that was really about a different fear, which often alcoholism is about. You're just hiding fears all the time. How much of a problem had alcohol become in your life, or why was it a problem? Well, I think there's a number of mitigating factors and events that I used as an excuse to drink. And certainly the first one was the loss of my swimming career. Uh, I didn't know who to be, what to do if I wasn't a swimmer. And I joined the Peace Corps and went to Kenya. Um, And then I found that, oh, Putting liquid inside of me was almost as satisfying as swimming through liquid. So, and I just sort of my identity morphed into from swimmer to party girl. So I traveled around the world having drinks and bars with interesting people and crazy men, and I really had a lot of fun. But then, after David was born, I realized I was depressed and scared about being a mother. That was an identity I had never really sort of imagined for myself until late in life. And my fear about being a mother and keeping him alive caused greater depression inside of me, which I I tried to cover up with alcohol. But it wasn't really until we moved to Abu Dhabi that I realized I was drinking a lot on my own. I didn't even want to go out anymore. I didn't want to go to parties. I wanted to get in my bed with alcohol. And that's when I knew this is bad. Even then, though, you were you were um, finding a way to make it okay in your life until you know that day in late March right. in 2015, where you it seems at least like you you sort of came to the realization all at once, or the acknowledgement all at once, and maybe the realization had been building for a very long time, but the mm-hmm. acknowledgement seemed to come in one fell swoop on that day. That's right, and it did. And it's not so much that the realization came to me, but I just was instantly tired of the lie and of the bargaining, of waking up hungover, going to work, and then checking the clock all afternoon, desperate to get home for precisely five o'clock to have my drink, that I felt that I deserved for surviving yet another day in Abu Dhabi. Uh, So just going to the doctor to get the medication just signaled the end for me. I can't hide this anymore, and I have to fix it. Let's go to Jessica, who's calling in from Claremont, New Hampshire. Hi, Jessica. Go right ahead. Hi. How are you? Thank you so much for taking my call. I'm a first-time caller, and your story just kind of reached out to me. Um, My mom actually passed away from alcoholism. She had cirrhosis of the liver. When I was 12 years old, she passed away, and it. I don't think a lot of people realize what a big epidemic um, alcoholism is and how hard it is just to stop and get help. Um, and there is a lot of 
shame for people. It was for my mother. You know, I, I knew I was young, but I still knew that, you know, something was going on. She shouldn't be drinking this much. And by the time that she was going to get help, it was it was too late. She she passed away. So I just I really wanted to say congratulations. And it's it's a tough thing to do. But you did it great. Um, and especially for your son. Thank you. Jessica, thank you for calling in, and I'm so sorry to hear about your experiences. Nancy, does hearing people's stories resonate with you now? I mean, you talked about wanting to make sure that because you have a voice, you you can be public about this. Right. I'm just sad every time I hear it. Um, It's a really tough disease to beat. Uh, Very, very difficult to break the addiction, and I think... People need support from wherever they can get it. And for some people, that's AA. I was in Abu Dhabi. I didn't know where an AA was, so I kind of invented my own scheme. Um, also, going dry in Abu Dhabi is is easier. In, in the United States, everything is about happy hour, all the advertisements. You go to the grocery store, rows and rows of wine and beer in Abu Dhabi and ostensibly in other places in the Middle East, it's not there. Here, drinking is above ground and non-drinkers are sent below ground, literally in AA meetings in basements. In Abu Dhabi, it's the other way. Um, Non-drinkers are above ground and drinkers are hidden away. So even though it's unusual and even struck me at the time that I want to quit drinking here, in many ways it was easier because Drinking is not reinforced. Although you were also a part of the expat community, whereas you you say in that passage you read, drinking is a big part of the culture, at least in the circles that you were traveling in. How did you deal with that among um, the the circles of expats that you were swirling in? Well, we liked to go to the British Club, which is really just called the Club in Abu Dhabi, and it's a portion of land um, that the former president had given to a group of expats where they could just do their own thing. And I, th- I think it makes sense that expats in another country might want to gather together the way immigrants immigrants to this country gather together. And when Westerners gather together in a, in a Muslim country, it often includes alcohol, which I enjoyed greatly while we were members of the club. But that day that I made the decision not to drink, I changed everything. And one of the things I did was to only go to the club in the morning to swim. I did not go in the evening. So I just I just flipped the switch and it's much more difficult than I'm making that sound. And then coffee became my life and the morning became my life. And evenings were about going to bed or watching a movie and not participating socially, even in a country where alcohol was forbidden. We've been talking a lot about uh, the the time, that sort of shift, that tectonic movement in your Mm -hmm. life. But this book has a lot of really kind of wonderful stories about your life and your youth and your young adulthood and all of the traveling that you did. And and you tie that traveling into this drive that you have inside yourself that you also think is connected to, um, to your addiction in some ways because of this sort of push you have to push yourself. But 
I'd love for you to tell us at least one of the stories. There are so many about your life in Kenya as a Peace Corps volunteer, um, some fairly traumatic experiences in South Korea. You talk a lot about exotic boyfriends that you had. It's really wonderful to hear about your youth and, and the drinking that went along with it that often in these stories is a really loving retelling of the drinking along mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. adventures. That's right. Uh, very keen observation, Jane. The drinking was part of the fuel, um, almost like the kick, if you will, the kick in swimming to take me overseas, uh, this movement forward to constantly be upping the ante. What can I make happen here? Uh, What situation can I create? Uh, Where can I go? And to some degree, uh, men and boyfriends were like my trophies. You know, if I could win someone's attention, I felt that was a victory because I was no longer having victories in the pool. So in Tanzania, I fell in love with a Turkish man, um, and we did our fair amount of drinking. Uh, Then in South Korea, a friend of mine was murdered ostensibly by another friend, Um, And the trauma of that carried me through many countries, and I used that as a reason to drink. I mean, the only thing worse than having a friend killed is probably having an even better friend um, be guilty of killing her. Uh, And I had a boyfriend named Jack who was a writer at that time, and we drank a lot just talking about that murder and how much that consumed us. And then I went to Washington, D.C. one time, and drank a lot there and fell in love with a U.S. senator who's still my friend. Um, you know, that's the part of the book that's kind of like the tell-all. This is right. the, this is the, the sexcapade part yes. of the book. When, and, and you can reveal, because you do reveal in the book, right. that this is Bob Carey we're talking that's about. That's Bob Carey, and he's still a very good friend of mine. And the night in question was the night of Bill Clinton's um, for, trying to pass his very first budget in Washington. And for some reason, I'm in Washington, and I'm in the same bar that Bob Carey went to after he placed the deciding vote to vote for uh, uh, Clinton's budget. And, you know, we locked eyes, and there you have it. He was a bachelor, <laughs> so I wasn't totally off my rocker. But And somehow we've managed to stay friends. And, and then I met my husband, Alan, uh, probably the person for for whom without I wouldn't be alive. I mean, he's really changed my life and saved my life and been so supportive. I met him at a bar in Winooski. We were on dates with other people, and we split up with those people and hooked up and married a year later, and that was 20 years ago. Today we're talking with Nancy Stearns Burkaw about coming to terms with her addiction to alcohol and how she got sober two years ago. She's written about it in her new memoir, Dryland, One Woman's Swim to Sobriety. We're also hearing about her life, her international life, and some of the amazing stories that she has in the book. Nancy, you were talking about your husband, Alan, and um, I listened to the audio version of your book, and Alan dropped it off yesterday Mm -hmm. at the studio, and he seemed so proud of you and proud of this book when he dropped it off, but he also admitted that it's a difficult book for him, and I'm, I'm wondering what kinds of conversations you've had with your husband and with your son about what you've been writing about and the fact that not only is your life very 
out in the open and public now, but so is theirs in a way. And mm -hmm. I'm sure they feel protective of you as well as protective of the life that the three of you have created together. So how, what, what kind of conversations do you have about that? Well, those conversations have only ramped up recently um, because our conversations have been about the issues portrayed in the book, but not so much about other people listening in to to our lives. And I don't think Alan realized the grandeur of it until he listened to the book on tape on a recent drive to New York. And I, th I think he might be a little, or he was a little rattled by it. But I also credit him for telling me when I first started to write this book, he said, Nancy, tell everything, every single story, tell the truth. I mean, he works in film um, and has written screenplays. He has often said that I hold back in my writing. And my agent said that as well. They both said, if you're going to do this, say it all. So I kind of look at him and say, well, if you're uncomfortable with it, you have no one to blame but yourself. Um, but it's hard. I mean, he has to listen to the talk of old boyfriends and sort of relive all this stuff, things that he, he, all, he knew about. Um, and then for David, his friends' parents will find out about it and his friends will. But I think the hope that some people might be helped overrules those general concerns. And my family agrees on that. Is there, though, in you some sort of self-flagellation or penance? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, you write unflinchingly. You're, you're not holding back. But you write about things that certainly the, the topic of alcoholism in general is hard to write about, but also things that it does to your body and, you know, things that it does to your bowels. And I imagine that's right. embarrassing to write about. So I wonder mm -hmm. if there's some guilt as well that you're trying to work through. I think everyone in recovery has to work through some degree of guilt and, and then make amends. I mean, that's one of the tenets of AA. And while I am not in that program, I think it comes instinctively to say, boy, I need to say I'm sorry to a few people. And I just got back from Kenya on a trip with my family where I, I didn't say I'm sorry, but I behaved in such a way that showed remorse. Um, so nothing is more embarrassing than losing control of your bowels in the backseat of a taxi cab with the driver is a Muslim and you don't know where there's a bathroom. Um, so writing about it is not as painful as the actual event. So I survived the event. I'll survive the writing about it. <laughs> We're talking with Nancy Stearns Burkaw. The book is Dryland, One Woman's Swim to Sobriety. John is calling in from Burlington. Hi, John. Go right ahead. Um, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just had a question. Um, I had, Nancy said that she was on uh, antidepressants and had quit drinking at the same time, and I'm just wondering how that had affected her depression. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So the problem with drinking and taking antidepressants is that alcohol is a depressant. So you're, you're effectively canceling them out. I think the antidepressants still help me to some degree, but I was ruining the effect by drinking so much. So when I quit drinking, which I did cold turkey, uh, I just felt bad for, for two weeks. And I, I didn't – I couldn't even manage my emotions or my bowels then either – um, but once the shock of quitting drinking diminished, 
uh, I was able to see a better benefit of the antidepressants. Um, and I think, I think they helped me. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, it's so muddled. And, and when you do quit drinking cold turkey, everything just becomes fuzzy and blurry and weird. I wasn't sure quite what was happening. And we did take some trips right after I quit drinking. We went to the Seychelles in the India's ocean. And going from the desert to a tropical island paradise, I wasn't sure if I was hallucinating from withdrawal, but everything just seemed so bright and fantastic, except the inside of my body, which felt more like Chernobyl. Um, so I can't say that right away I could distinguish between what was making me feel better and what was making me feel worse. I continue to take antidepressants and I feel very even and I also feel like I can manage fear so much better. And I really think that's also because I quit drinking alcohol, which made all my fears worse. Yeah, you talk about your first flight without alcohol and right. and how you you managed, you know, and and, yeah. and discovered in some ways that alcohol was not actually making you feel better on those flights. Right. And and maybe some of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I always said, oh, I'm nervous to fly, even though obviously I fly all around the world all the time. But if I say I'm nervous about flying and I create that anxiety in myself – then I can get my medicine, which is the alcohol. Um, so that first flight without alcohol that I had taken since I was 18 years old, I was floating up there somewhere over the Indian Ocean saying, this isn't too bad. And the other thing I was thinking about, because we had to fly around Yemen, the airspace over Yemen was closed. I was thinking about the actual suffering on the ground, not my own suffering, even though I was a few days into my quitting and I was not feeling 100%. But I was like, the real problem is what's happening in Yemen. It's not with Nancy Burkhoff. So just this fundamental shift about suffering took place. Nancy, can you describe your tattoos and what the coordinates oh, represent? Right. Uh, I have two latitude and longitude tattoos on my right ankle, one is for Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, where I was born. And the other is the DMZ between North and South Korea, a place I've been to twice in my life. I'm very interested, again, in identity and landscape and what having a line through your country does to people on either side. And I feel like I have a line through me now of the drinking Nancy and the non-drinking Nancy and my landscape is Abu Dhabi where this took place. But also I have that particular DMZ tattoo because my my friend and co-teacher at a school in South Korea in 1988 was murdered in her bed. And it's still very much an unsolved case. And I just wanted to honor her in some way. I wanted to be able to look at a part of my body and say, yes, Carolyn Abel lived. You also mentioned that there would be a third set of coordinates and that right. that third set would be the location where you die. Right. So in Abu Dhabi, when I was waiting, you know, I, f I don't want to give too much of the book away, but when I'm in the hospital waiting and, and the doctors and the pharmacies are all in the hospitals, I didn't go and check myself into a hospital. I went to the hospital to go and find a general protect practitioner to give me my medicine. And... Uh, they agreed to it. There was a, a lot of turmoil around getting that antidepressant. But I'm in the pharmacy 
And I'm still trying to make the decision whether I'm going to quit drinking or not. I mean, just all this perseverating that plays out in the book. And I'm looking at my tattoos and I realize, you know, I have my birth. I have this traumatic experience in my life. Is the third place of importance going to be the place of my death? And is it going to be Abu Dhabi if I keep drinking like this? So the thought of, you know, maybe post-mortem having this tattoo on me that said, okay, then she died in Abu Dhabi scared me. And I just didn't, I didn't want it to go that way anymore. Would you get a third tattoo? I think I will. In fact, I, I want to get one in Arabic. Uh, there's, there's a phrase that my, my friend in Abu Dhabi said I would like, and it's, it's talking about Allah, and it says, um, for I am near. And I just think that's so beautiful, for I am near. That's all you need to know. And so the night that I quit drinking, I woke up in the morning. I mean, I, I don't think I slept a bit. But the first sound I heard was the call to prayer in Abu Dhabi. And my feeling was that Allah showed up for me. Had I been in the States, it might have been God or Jesus. But at the, the place that I was, physically and emotionally, the person who spoke to me was the God of the region. And uh, I, I owe him a lot. And I owe Abu Dhabi a lot. You don't talk about this in the book, but you said in an article in uh, Kids Vermont that you consider yourself now a Muslim. I do. And I think if you read the book, what well, what do you think? I mean, I feel like I was writing it with trying to understand Islam and my interest in it and, and sharing that with people as well. I mean, this is a book about adventure, about addiction, but it's also a love letter to Islam very much. I mean, and my first experience with Islam was in 1986 in East Africa. And I, I've touched that stone all around the world and then the big stone of of Abu Dhabi. So I do consider myself a Muslim. I'm not a good one. I was not a good Christian. But all I can say is on the day of my crisis, Allah was there. You write about yourself as being an all-in kind of person. You were all into swimming. You were all into the adrenaline rush that you got from travel and romance, and you were all into drinking. And a lot of alcoholics talk about needing to find something to replace the sort of gaping hole that can sometimes be left when you take alcohol out of it. Is there something like that for you? Well, I think writing, which I, I feared when I quit drinking that I would not be able to write. I find that I write better now. I write more clearly. I tell it all. Uh, sorry, Alan. And uh, I enjoy it more. So I think I, I, I like to say that wor words are my are my wine now. And I'm also back to swimming. I'm at the Y doing master swimming. And I'm now mysteriously ranked top in the country in one event. So I just, I just went back to being a swimmer. Does that feel good? Because swimming didn't always feel good to you when you were not. young. It was violent for me as a, as a young person. Now it feels more calm. And I'm also more comfortable with my difficult relationship with it. And I swim with fabulous people and a great coach. So the, I found the joy in swimming.
It seems like you've found a lot of joy in your life and you, you know, you have this family that you say is very supportive, your your husband, Alan, your son, David, you have swimming back in your life, you have travel, you were just in Kenya and mm-hmm. uh, you, you talk about this on some of your social media pages and the joy you're getting seeing things like a library back when you were working right. in the Peace Corps. It, does your life feel different now than it, it did two does. years ago? It feels fantastic, I have to say. It took a while, but I feel alive again in a way that I I never was. Well, Nancy, thank you for writing the book and for sharing it with us and for talking about it today. Thanks for having me and letting me talk about it. This is really the first time I've spoken about it. I've written, shared with my family, but... It's public now. Thank you, Jane. Oh, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that with us. Nancy Stearns Burka is a writer and national champion swimmer. <laughs> Her new memoir is called Dryland One Woman's Swim to Sobriety.